No matter how expert you may be, well-designed checklists can improve outcomes. Stephen Levitt Man's time here is finite, but the influence of a man is infinite. The question is what shall we do with the daylight that remains? Welcome back. Here we go again. Today we're going to utilize the book, The Checklist Manifesto, How to Get Things Right, written by Atul Gawande, to talk about utilizing checklists and organizing your day, uh, organizing yourself in how you approach new tasks and make sure that you get things done. Um, Quickly on Atul Gawande, he's a New York Times bestseller. He's written several books. He's an endocrine surgeon. He's a Harvard Medical School professor. And he leads the World Health Organization's Safe Surgeries Save Lives program. And Atul Gawande, with several others who have worked on various projects, are directly responsible for saving hundreds of thousands of lives, some of which came from this book, uh, specifically working out a checklist and implementing it into complex scenarios. So a lot of times people use checklists for very simple things. It's almost like that dopamine feedback to see like, here's all the things I'm going to do today. And then they check them off. And it sort of is this dopamine release of look like feeling accomplished for the day. And I think that's totally fine. But I want to get to a deeper issue here, which is how do you change specific behaviors in your life? And as we discovered in, in a recent podcast on the brain, when we repeat patterns and do things over and over, the brain literally creates these little pathways in your brain, neuropathways, like pathways through a forest of trees, right? You've ever come across those game animal trails in the forest and they're super worn in for no other reason than it has been used many times. All that vegetation is kind of worn out and gone. The trees of branches have been bitten or broken or brushed off and there's a nice pathway, right? And if those animals stopped using that pathway, eventually the vegetation would grow over it and there would be no clear path through that uh, section of forest, right? The brain operates the same way. When we do something over and over, we create these pathways. But when we're trying to create a new habit or new behavior, we have to really use the conscious mind to override the subconscious, right? We're trying to override those really solidified pathways. And one good way to help you do that is writing out a checklist daily, right? So if every evening you plan your following day, right? Write down all the tasks that you're going to do tomorrow. All you have to do is wake up tomorrow and look at that list and you're reminding yourself, oh yes, conscious brain, remember, I'm going to do X, Y, and Z. And if you write it down every day, you know, not too long later, you've suddenly got this new behavior. Another thing which he really addresses in this book In complex environments, we want the conscious mind to be focused on the most important tasks. But what happens is we often miss simple tasks that are also critical. Some of the great stories in here that we're going to get into is is in surgery or even the construction of a large building. There's just so many things at play that you, you know, despite the exceptional education and study and practice of some of these physicians, they still fail to wash their hands, for example, 
which they know is important. It's just they're so preoccupied with trying to figure out, you know, this heart surgery or this neurosurgery or an endocrine surgery or whatever the case may be, that they forget to do some of the simple things that they know better, but they just skipped it. So a checklist can help you make sure that you get things right in a complex environment. So you don't really have to spend much time thinking about that because the checklist is in place to make sure you do it so that you can continue to preoccupy yourself with the complex issues. So let's jump into some of the highlights here that help us understand what a checklist does and what it's for. So the problem of extreme complexity. He says, the ninth edition of the World Health Organization's International Classification of Diseases has grown to distinguish more than 13,000 different diseases, syndromes, and types of injuries. More than 13,000 different ways, in other words, that the body can fail, and for nearly all of them, science has given us things we can do to help. If we cannot cure the disease, then we can usually reduce the harm and misery it causes. But for each condition, the steps are different, and they are almost never simple. Clinicians now have at their disposal some 6,000 drugs and 4,000 medical and surgical procedures, each with different requirements, risks, and considerations. It is a lot to get right. <laughs> so, I mean, you, you may not be a surgeon, right, a doctor, but life is complex. Uh, how do you manage a marriage well with with children, with a job, with community service duties and responsibilities, with hobbies, friends, uh, vacations. I, it's just a lot to try and get right. And a lot can go wrong and you miss things that then cause frustration for yourself, frustration for your spouse, frustration for your employer, your clients, etc. You know, there's just so much. So figuring out how to utilize checklists in these environments can improve your life significantly. So skipping several pages, he says, they found that the average patient required 178 individual actions per day, ranging from administering a drug to suctioning the lungs, and every one of them posed risks. Remarkably, the nurses and doctors were observed to make an error in just 1% of these actions, but that still amounted to an average of two errors a day with every patient. I might just be frightening you guys from ever going to a doctor or hospital again. Again, skipping ahead, this is the reality of intensive care. At any point, we are as apt to harm as we are to heal. Line infections are so common, they are considered a routine complication. ICUs put 5 million lines into patients every year, and national statistics show that after 10 days, 4% of those lines become infected. Line infections occur in 80,000 people a year in the United States and are fatal between 5 and 28% of the time depending on how sick one is at the start. Those who survive line infections spend on average a week longer in intensive care, and this is just one of many risks. After 10 days with a urinary catheter, 4% of American ICU patients develop a bladder infection. After 10 days on a ventilator, 6% develop bacterial pneumonia, resulting in death 40 to 45% of the time. Pretty wild, right? These are complicated issues. These are simple things that go wrong where we make a slight mistake and it results in extended length of stay in the hospital, more antibiotics, new procedures, which all present more opportunity for harm or things to go wrong. And then, as you saw, quite a, a large percentage of death as a result of these things. Americans today undergo an average of seven operations in their lifetime. With surgeons performing more than 50 million operations annually, the amount of harm remains substantial. 
We continue to have upwards of 150,000 deaths following surgery every year, more than three times the number of road traffic fatalities. Moreover, research has consistently shown that at least half our deaths and major complications are avoidable. The knowledge exists, but however supremely specialized and trained we may have become, steps are still missed. Mistakes are still made. Medicine, with its dazzling success but also frequent failures, therefore poses a significant challenge. What do you do when expertise is not enough? What do you do when even the super specialists fail? We've begun to see an answer, but it has come from an unexpected source, one that has nothing to do with medicine at all. Okay, so now let's kind of jump into how this checklist addresses such a complicated scenario, right? We have these surgeons that spend decades learning how to do this job, right? Some of the most brilliant minds, and yet they still fail with a fairly high rate of frequency. So the checklist, this sort of comes from the airline industry. Uh, there's one quote in here that he's talking about this Boeing model that came out and it says too much airplane for one man to fly. And the test flights were difficult. They had accidents. The airplane was thought that it would never get off the ground and ever be sold. So they had to figure out how to make it flyable. So for this specific plane, they did not require model 299 pilots to undergo longer training. It was hard to imagine having more experience and expertise than Major Hill, who had been the Air Corps' chief of flight testing. Instead, they came up with an ingeniously simple approach. They created a pilot checklist. So he goes through some great detail on how they came up with this list and that every plane has one and that that is a standard procedure in the airline industry. You check every gauge, every fuel pressure, everything, and make sure that everything is in order before you turn the aircraft over to the expert pilot who knows how to, you know, throttle up the air, aircraft and get it in the air and fly it safely to a new destination and find that tiny little piece of concrete on the other side of the country and somehow land it safely. <laughs> so you need both. You want the expert and you want the checklist to make sure that nothing gets overlooked. So going back to the medical industry at John Hopkins Hospital, they tried implementing a checklist. He says, on a sheet of plain paper, he plotted out the steps to take in order to avoid infection when putting in a central line. Doctors are supposed to, number one, wash their hands with soap. Two, clean the patient's skin with chlorhexidine antiseptic. Three, put sterile drapes over the entire patient. Four, wear a mask, hat, sterile gown, and gloves. And five, put a sterile dressing over the insertion site once the line is in. Check, 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 check. These steps are no-brainers. They have been known and taught for years. So it seemed silly to make a checklist for something so obvious. Still, Pronovost asked the nurses in the ICU to observe the doctors for a month as they put lines into patients and record how often they carried out each step. In more than a third of patients, they skipped at least one. Isn't that shocking? A third of patients, they skipped one of those five steps. Very, very easy steps. Very smart people, experienced. They skipped it. So continuing on, the next month, he and his team persuaded the John Hopkins Hospital administration to authorize nurses to stop doctors if they saw them skipping a step on the checklist. 
Nurses were also to ask the doctors each day whether any lines ought to be removed so as not to leave them in longer than necessary. This was revolutionary. Nurses have always had their ways of nudging a doctor into doing the right thing, ranging from the gentle reminder, um, did you forget to put on your mask, doctor, to more forceful methods. I've had a nurse body check me when she thought I hadn't put enough drapes on a patient. But many nurses aren't sure whether this is their place or whether a given measure is worth a confrontation. Does it really matter whether a patient's legs are draped for a line going in the chest? The new rule made it clear. If doctors didn't follow every step, the nurses would have backup from the administration to intervene. For a year afterward, Pronovost and his colleagues monitored what happened. The results were so dramatic that they weren't sure whether to believe them. The 10-day line infection rate went from 11% to zero. So they followed patients for 15 more months. Only two line infections occurred during the entire period. They calculated that in this one hospital, the checklist had prevented 43 infections and eight deaths and saved $2 million in costs. So they go on to have others create checklists and talking about research, he says the researchers found that simply having the doctors and nurses in the ICU create their own checklists for what they thought should be done each day improved the consistency of the care to the point that the average length of patients stay in intensive care dropped by half. Which is incredible. So I've been in healthcare, a healthcare consultant and things for several years, and we have entire multi-billion dollar industries based on figuring out how to reduce patient length of stay, reduce poor outcomes and things like that. And here they are cutting patient length of stay in half just by having nurses on their own, create their own checklist of what they think should happen. So relate that to your own life. Like where are errors happening in your life? Where are conflict zones occurring in your marriage, with your kids, at your job, with your employer, with your clients? Is it because simple tasks are kind of being missed that you could probably prevent had you run through the checklist? What checklist can you put into your life? So I'm skipping several chapters, jumping into a later part of the book. Another study from Columbus Children's Hospital, they're talking about children's surgeries, appendectomies, and that basically one of the best ways to prevent infections is to give an antibiotic to the patient at the right time, just prior to the surgery. And it seems to prevent from infections from any other mistakes that might be made or even just leaking from the gut, things like that, because you're doing a surgery between a non-sterile and a sterile part of the body. So in regards to the antibiotic, he says, yet this step is commonly missed. In 2005, Columbus Children's Hospital examined its records and found that more than one third of its appendectomy patients failed to get the right antibiotic at the right time. Some got it too soon. Some got it too late. Some did not receive an antibiotic at all. It seems dumb. How hard could this be? Even people in medicine assume we get this kind of simple task right 100% of the time, but in fact, we don't. Skipping a couple of paragraphs, the hospital's director of surgical administration, who happened to not only be a pediatric cardiac surgeon, but also a pilot, decided to take the aviation approach. He designed a pre-incision cleared for takeoff checklist that he put on a whiteboard in each of the operating rooms. It was really simple. There was a checkbox for the nurse to verbally confirm with the team that they had the correct patient in the correct side of the body planned for surgery, something teams are supposed to verify in any case. And there was a further checkbox to confirm that the antibiotics were given or else judged unnecessary, which they can be for some operations. 
There wasn't much more to it, but getting teams to stop and use the checklist to make it their habit was clearly tricky. A couple of checkboxes weren't going to do much all by themselves. So the surgical director gave some lectures to the nurses, anesthesiologists, and surgeons explaining what this checklist thing was all about. He also did something curious. He designed a little metal tent stenciled with the phrase cleared for takeoff and arranged for it to be placed in the surgical instruments kit. The metal tent was six inches long, just long enough to cover a scalpel, and the nurses were asked to set it over the scalpel when laying out the instruments before the case. This served as a reminder to run the checklist before making the decision. Just as important, it also made clear that the surgeon could not start the operation until the nurse gave the okay and removed the tent. A subtle cultural shift, even a modest checklist, had the effect of distributing power. The surgical director measured the effect on care. After three months, 89% of appendicitis patients got the right antibiotics at the right time. After 10 months, 100% did. The checklist had become habitual, and it had also become clear that team members could hold up an operation until the necessary steps were completed. So pretty interesting way to get creative and and force a checklist into an environment that maybe had some big egos and didn't want a checklist. Uh, Make sure that's not you. (laughs) There's another example in here where they implemented a checklist and part of the checklist was to introduce themselves in the OR before starting because sometimes you have doctors that came from another area or nurses are floating, different things. And there are big egos. You probably hear of doctors having a God complex. That's kind of a common thing we nurses talk about. It's a bit of a joke, but some doctors seem that way. And so it's a little bit intimidating at times to try and stop a procedure that you know is very expensive in many ways. It's it's costly for the patient physically, <laughs> mentally, emotionally, right? The amount of time, it's they usually have family out waiting with anxiety. There's tons of money in the room high-paid doctors, multiple nurses, expensive instruments. Everything is is kind of high stakes. And if anything goes wrong, you're talking about injury or death. So it can be nerve-wracking to stop a surgery because you noticed a mistake. And a lot of times you assume that the person that made the mistake maybe recognize it and they're going to try and cover their tracks in a, you know, by, by making up for it somehow or administering a new antibiotic later or what. There, there's just a lot that could happen to cover it, right? Well, that checklist had them introduce themselves and then run through the procedures to make sure that they had the right patient, the right appendage, the right tools, the right everything. And it turned out that people were much more willing to speak up after they had introduced themselves. And it also improved the morale. So he says that John Hopkins Research, specifically measuring their checklist effect on teamwork, 11 surgeons had agreed to try it in their cases, seven general surgeons, two plastic surgeons, and two neurosurgeons. After three months, the number of team members in their operations reporting that they functioned as a well-coordinated team leapt from 68% to 92%. At the Kaiser Hospital in Southern California, researchers had tested their checklist for six months in 3,500 operations. During that time, they found that their staff's average rating of the teamwork climate improved from good to outstanding. Employee satisfaction rose 19%. The rate of OR nurse turnover, the proportion leaving their jobs each year, dropped from 23% to 7%. So all kinds of benefits that you would not expect from a checklist, morale and job turnover decreasing because 
mistakes cause conflict and conflict is, is difficult to continue to work in. But when everyone's cohesive and we stop and cover each other's backs and make sure this patient's well taken care of and that the procedure goes smoothly and we make profit and the patients are happy and everything is better, morale improves, right? Okay, so what is a good checklist? Bad checklists are vague and unprecise. They're too long. They are hard to use. They're impractical. They are made by desk jockeys with no awareness of the situation. So it's got to be someone that's in the situation, aware of the variables, and what do they think is important. Good checklists, on the other hand, are precise. They're efficient to the point. They're easy to use even in the most difficult situations. They do not try to spell out everything. A checklist cannot fly a plane. Instead, they provide reminders of only the most critical and important steps, the ones that even highly skilled professionals using them could miss. Good checklists are, above all, practical. On the other page, talking about the airline industry again, he says they learn from the beginning of flight school that their memory and judgment are unreliable and that lives depend on their recognizing that fact. So there's two kinds of checklists, a confirmed checklist or a redo checklist, uh, depending on the scenario, right? So do you do something and then go over it and make sure you got everything or do you confirm it as you go before you start the event? And I've experienced this piece in my life many times. In fact, I'm working on a course, so you can expect that to come out soon, on how to achieve any goal of any size through a very simple process. And he says, no matter how careful we might be, no matter how much thought we might put in, a checklist has to be tested in the real world, which is inevitably more complicated than expected. First drafts always fall apart, he said, and one needs to study how, make changes, and keep testing until the checklist works consistently. (laughs) If that doesn't apply to life, I don't know what does, right? You always think you've got a plan, a budget, something, and and unexpected events occur, or you didn't think of how much time it would take or who else might be disrupting it, or you have to to make adjustments, come back and try again. And a good checklist has been tried and tested and helps you address the most critical steps without getting in the way. And Make sure that you get the critical things out of the way so that your conscious mind can focus on the real trials and and obstacles that you're trying to tackle. So anyway, I highly recommend you find a way to implement checklists into your life. Uh, You may not be a, a pilot or a surgeon, but we all have complicated lives with many things going on at the same time. I use a checklist every single day of my life. Every day, I write down what I'm going to do the next day. Uh, Some of them, I write them down knowing that I'm not actually going to do it the next day, but I want to remember it for two, three, four, five days later. That's when I'm going to do it. So I keep that in my checklist. And uh, it it reminds me that on you know next Thursday, I'm going to be doing this thing or things that I do every day. Some people call them non-negotiables, things like that, that you can sort of track yourself. Am I actually getting done the things that I told myself I would do? which is an issue of uh, integrity. But if it's not a habitual thing, you've got to make sure to bring that to the forefront of your conscious mind to make sure that you get that done. And when you do, you you reinforce those feelings of integrity and confidence and self-esteem in, in that you did what you said you were going to do. So a checklist is critical in helping you do that. So I hope you guys got some value out of this. The Checklist Manifesto, I did do a podcast episode on this book a while back. So if you're interested in hearing more, you can go grab it. Of course, I'll put the link in the show notes so you can purchase your copy from 
Amazon. Please share this content, give it a review and a rating that helps us reach a broader audience. I appreciate you guys showing up and we'll catch you on the next one. Hey, thanks for listening to the entire episode. As a token of gratitude, I want to give you a discount on my book, Ingrained. Head over to bronsonwilkes.com store and download Ingrained for less than a dollar with the coupon code GOALS, G-O-A-L-S.